Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and this week I'm interviewing Patrick Barkham, who writes for The Guardian and has authored multiple books. But before we get on to him, we're going to talk a little bit about the news. Now, I was reading a paper recently, and jellyfish contain no calories. So why do they still attract predators? Well, they contain no carbohydrates, no fats, no protein, and not much else but water. Still, the moon jelly are eaten by predators in the sea, fish, crustaceans, sea anemones, even corals and turtles. The jellyfish in the study showed to contain some fatty acids that are very valuable for their predators. Fatty acids are vital components to cell membranes and play a crucial role in processes like growth and reproduction. Jellyfish are likely to be more than just an opportunistic prey to many organisms. It is true that a predator does not get much from eating a single jellyfish, but if it eats many, it will make a difference and provide the predator with valuable fatty acids. And obviously jellyfish can't exactly swim away, they're not that quick, so they're an easy food to eat multiples of. So that's why predators eat some jellyfish. Now on to the interview this week. Patrick Barkham is a writer and journalist. He's worked for The Times and The Guardian, where he is a features writer. Patrick grew up in Norfolk and studied at Cambridge University. He has a keen interest in nature, and his first book, The Butterfly Isles, A Summer in Search of Our Emperors and Admirals, was a critical and commercial success. So, naturally, we're going to have a little waffle about butterflies and some of the other things that Patrick has been involved with. So, here's our chat. Well, thanks for joining me, Patrick. Thanks for having me, Jack. Yeah, no. pleasure to be with you. No, definitely. I've been looking forward to this because I keep mentioning your butterfly book in previous podcasts. Um, so I should probably start with that, actually. So what prompted you to find every butterfly in Britain in, in, in a year, no less, as well? Yeah, it was an uncompleted boyhood mission of mine. So I'd, I'd got really into butterflies as a kid, aged about eight, and... At that age, my dad, to me, seemed to have wildlife superpowers and he seemed to be able to name every <laughs> bird in the sky and every flower and blade of grass under his feet. But um, yeah, his superpowers deserted him when it came to butterflies. And so this was something that we explored together and we were on holiday at Holm Dunes Nature Reserve on the north north coast. And dad had discovered that the brown argus used to be found here and no longer was. And so we set out to find it one sunny lunchtime together and uh, there was just something about that first day going off in pursuit of this butterfly there was an exciting mission you know trying to find something that we didn't know if it was there or not and that dad had said was you know a little bit rare as it, as it indeed was in those days in the 1980s and uh but some spark just lit that day looking at these butterflies it was a beautiful sunny day and the June smelt of time and it was a lovely experience and I think also the fact that my dad wasn't this big expert in butterflies handing handing it on to me it was something that we discovered together and we began going off looking for butterflies together and we did kind of more conventional father-son things like going and watching Norwich City play football in the winter but in, in, in the summer we'd go off on these missions and I went to 
uh, look for the dingy skipper at Narborough Common in Norfolk and we went to Foxley Wood in Norfolk to look for particular butterflies like the White Admiral and, and the Purple Emperor which was extinct then from Norfolk and then we gradually travelled further afield but we never we never got and we continued to do this all through my teens really you know I still enjoyed it you know once or twice a summer me and dad would go on a trip together and try and see some new species but we ran out of summers or we ran out of steam and never got to see all 58 as it then was species of British butterfly and then I was in my 30s in working and living in London and feeling increasingly sort of alienated uh, with city life and um, and a, a sort of not a strange but not connected in the way I wanted to be with the countryside where I'd grown up and uh, loved and wanted to live and going and completing that unfulfilled boyhood mission seemed to me to be a good way to reconnect with the countryside and, and so it proved and I did also I was a journalist and I was in search of a topic for a book and um, I'd actually had some discussions with uh, and uh, then uh, a young sort of literary agent called Carolina Sutton who became my literary agent and we actually had discussions and she was like well what were you passionate about as a boy you know because I said I really want to I'd love to write a book and I said well butterflies and and so you know she said that sounds like an interesting subject so I, I went away and had a thought and so it was the two things kind of coming together in a in a very organic way that um that desire to um you know kind of return to nature but also it tied in with writing so so it, it was from the start my mission was tied up with writing the book that became the butterfly isles so was there a species that stood out for you i mean i'm sure i mean i have read the book but they're, they're all interesting species in their own right but is there a species that you were like that's my favorite or that's the one i really want to find well the i, I suppose there were about five that I'd never seen as a, as a boy. I say about because I'd actually slightly lost track of what I had seen and what I hadn't. But um, <laughs> um, but but uh, the one for me that I really wanted to see was the checkered skipper, which uh, became extinct in England in 1977, but lingered on in the Highlands of Scotland. There was this relic population up there that had had moved north in warmer times and then become cut off and stranded. And I love the story of how that butterfly was rediscovered in Scotland as late as 1941, you know, during the Second World War. It was only then that, that people realised that there was a, this extraordinary sort of outpost of chequered skippers way to the north of what was considered their natural range. And then the irony of them being wiped out in what was considered their natural range in England, in Rutland, in um, the lovely old forest of Rockingham. And, and and enduring up in Scotland. So that was the one I really wanted to see. And in terms of highlights on the way, there were there were so many. It was um, lovely. The only thing is, is that sometimes people say, oh, wow, that's so impressive to do it in a year. It, it's actually, I always say to people, don't do it in a year, whatever you do, you know. <laughs> I was combining it with a full-time job and it was just a ridiculous amount of, uh, you know, burning carbon, by driving all kinds of places, you know, do it, do it over five years, enjoy it, you know, have a holiday well, once a year to a lovely butterfly location, like, you know, go to the Isle of Wight and then see the Glanville Fertillery or have a holiday in the Highlands and see the Chequered Skipper, you know, that's the quality way to do it. 
Well, it nearly risked your relationship. I, I seem to remember reading in the book. I mean, that kind of made, I shouldn't laugh at your misfortune on it, but I, I was thinking like, oh God, this is, uh, this is going you know, pretty, pretty serious. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my girlfriend at the time, Lisa, did break up with me because of my obsession with butterflies and the fact that I was spending every spare hour on this mission um, that I wasn't working at my day job. And um, yeah, we broke up and I was kind of genuinely heartbroken. And she actually made the call to end our relationship while I was uh, um, sort of 1,500 feet up Grey Knots in the Lake District looking for the mountain ringlet. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I sat on a rock thinking suddenly my butterfly mission was slightly less appealing. And um, yeah. I was kind of, yeah, it was, I was genuinely shocked. I hadn't seen it coming because I was so enthralled to this obsession. I'm sure many of your listeners will um, relate to that. And um, yeah, and I got on the phone to a male friend of mine and I was chatting to him as, as you do. Um, you know, and he was kind of saying things like, you know, don't worry, mate. You know, things blokes say to each other, blokes yeah, are yeah. in the sea or whatever. And I was like, oh. And then he heard me on the phone just go, yes, yes, yes. And he was like, what, what's happening? What, what's wrong? And I'd um, seen from the rock a little movement in the grass, and it was a there'd been a flash of sunlight. It was a terribly grey day, and there was a little flicker of movement, and I ran. And there was a mountain ringlet, and I'd, I'd sort of got the mountain ringlet, which was the butterfly that another one I hadn't seen before, and one that I was dreading seeing because I didn't know its habits, and I hadn't gone with anyone to see it. I was kind of just alone up this mountain top. It's our only alpine butterfly. It's the only one that's um, only found above uh, fifteen hundred feet. So um, you've got to climb a modest-sized Lake District fell to find it, basically. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that because I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming you know that I filmed all the fish, but I, I, I went around filming all these freshwater. Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, that, took, that took seven years, and I definitely wouldn't, I wouldn't have wanted to do it in it. I mean, when I first started, I was like, yeah, take it, take a year, I'll do this, and yeah, and eventually it took seven. So no, I agree. Um, there's no point rushing it. It's nicer to spread it out and you know make make the memories uh, last a bit more. So I can wholly sympathise with you for that. That's much, much harder, though, finding all the freshwater fish and filming them. Yeah, it was, it was, well, I mean, I've never tried to film every butterfly, so I wouldn't, I can't say definitely, but yeah, they are, they are tricky. I, I noticed that a lot of these groups of animals, there seems to be around about 50 of everything, like there's 50 odd butterflies, 50 odd fish, 50 odd dragonflies, seems to be the magic number for some reason. I don't know uh, why, why that is. Um, I mean, I remember reading the book as well, and it's this sort of, um, almost looked down or people are seen as crazy who go after butterflies it's sort of stigma isn't there and it's in a way it's i don't know if look down's the right word but like bird watchers some bird watchers poo poo it a little bit like some switch onto it in the summer like right now you mm. know uh, normally there isn't much. i mean birding at the minute there's bearded vultures and all sorts turning up but um normally there isn't a lot going on so some will switch onto butterflies but others almost see it beneath them do you think that's a fair assumption or do you think they kind of embrace it yeah, I think that has changed. And there's certainly that I hear more and more, maybe I only hear the sort of um, converted birders because they're the only ones who come and talk to me. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, loads of people say like, oh, I hadn't really thought about butterflies and now I've started doing, you know, July is peak butterfly and there's nothing happening usually um, in the bird world. And uh, I do think certainly since 
So my book, The Butterflies, was published back in 2010, 10 years ago. And at that time, Butterfly Conservation had 15,000 members. And it's, they've now got more than 35,000 members. So there's been a huge, I like to think it's partly because of my book. <laughs> it must be, it must be. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I do think there's been a huge increase in the number of people who are into butterflies. And it's very interesting because historically, the old Victorian collectors and obsessives were all men, almost all men apart from Lady Eleanor Glanville, who named the Glanville Fritillary, who was a great lepidopterist of the 18th century. But, um, you know, it was seen as this weird, quirky habit of weird, eccentric men. But nowadays, there's definitely more women than men into, into butterflies. And I think sometimes when the man is a kind of obsessive birder, um, his partner, if they're, you know, a heterosexual couple, will um, maybe get into butterflies first or... or um, or, you know, or encourage him into butterflies. There's a bit of that going on, which is really nice. So it isn't like this sort of sexist thing anymore um, and, and hasn't been for a while. But um, I also think there is that thing of, my God, butterflies are really easier than birds because of that limited number, you know, 59 British native species, resident, regular breeding species but um now of course a lot of butterfly people are getting into moths and i think that gives them a bit more credibility yeah. in the birding world because when you can id you know 2500 species of moth that occur in britain then you're you're you know you're a, and i can't so i'm not no, i'm not both it is moth, mothing, it, you're yeah. a proper naturalist if you can do those micro moths even the even the macros even all the all the pug moths and things you know you're doing really well but that again there's been an explosion of interest in moth trapping just in the last sort of three or four years so things have definitely changed radically in a in a decade in a really good way moffing is definitely a slippery slope i um i bought my first moth trap last week actually it was uh, a right. uh, i can't remember what kind it is anyway but I, I i gave it a go in the garden and i was like i'm not you know i live in a kind of suburban area and I thought, i'm not going to get a lot but I, I put it out and then the next uh, morning looked and I, I haven't got a clue what half of them are but there was loads in there and I was like oh this is amazing and cockchafer beetles and all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff and it's like oh I don't know if I need another another hobby yeah. to get into but uh, it was really good I really enjoyed doing that and I also which I think I briefly mentioned in an email to you I went on a butterfly walk um, in a woodland close I've just moved house to a, a small village in Nottinghamshire and there's purple emperors there there's white uh, white letter hair streak and purple hair streak and we went mm. to go see them and we didn't see purple emperor but we did see the other two but they were kind of specks high up so yeah. I, I was expecting them to be down in in the wildflowers and really close but it was it was still interesting and it was amazing like you said when you do get those people who know you know oh that that's the uh, what do they call it the master oak or something like that that's where the yeah. they the hang around yeah. That, yeah. and all, all these little ter it's like a secret language all these different terminologies and um all you know it was, it was really good it kind of got me thinking oh you know i should really do this a little bit more as well so i'm always happy to be enlightened with that kind of stuff um it is lovely those treetop butterflies in particular the hair streaks and the purple emperor you know they're they're ones that if you're a birder you've kind of got the skills to see because you're you're used to looking that long range you know distance at things and picking stuff up in amongst branches and they're, they're quite a challenge but yeah you can always learn more in the in the world of butterflies even just sticking with the 59 british species there's 
there's so much to learn about their life cycles and um, habits and behaviors and distribution and even their personalities and you know we've seen Matthew Oates who's the great purple emperor man in this country and he's just written a, a big entire book just on the purple emperor you know one species of butterfly and it's and there's still more to say than he said you know and uh, that's amazing isn't it that you can keep on digging deeper and deeper into into uh, something as inconsequential as one species of insect yeah, no, definitely. I mean, when when we were walking around, there were so many photographers and bird watchers, and there were a few birders I recognised, and they they almost looked like they were kind of walking out of a brothel. They looked a bit shifty, like oh, I, I, I'm not I'm not meant to be here. I'm I'm meant to be photographing birds, and it's like there's no shame, you know. These are in these are interesting animals. Don't you know? Embrace it. Go go for it. Um, so I, I thought that was great. I'm, I'm going to definitely give it another go. Your your second book is all about badgers and you call it Badgerland. And obviously the badger cull remains a controversial, a controversial decision. And you speak to both sides, speak to farmers, speak to scientists, people who spend a lot of time with badgers. What I wanted to know was what was your, what was your conclusion? You know, do you, do you think that the cull was justified? I know we've gone from butterflies to quite a, a serious issue, but yeah. I'd get your view on it. I mean, yeah, it won't surprise you to, to, to learn that I've, don't think the cull was justified and I, I wrote a lot of Badgerlands in the run-up to the cull and then um, in the paperback edition I, I write a chapter about the actual beginnings of the cull but it was sparked that book by the fact that my grandma had campaigned for legal protection for badgers back in the 1960s and and was quite influential in the Badgers Act which was the first piece of legislation to protect a land mammal in Britain. Uh, seals had been protected at an earlier date. And so that came into force in 1973. And grandma died, you know, 20 years ago. But I remember when the cull suddenly, suddenly on the agenda in 2010, when it was part of the coalition agreement between the Lib Dems and the Conservatives. And so suddenly it was on the agenda in 2010, this new government was saying, let's cull badgers. And I sort of wondered what my grandma would have made of it. Yeah. And I really tried... I, I don't like writing ranty books or polemical books. I only tried to be open to both sides of the argument. And I spent a lot of time in farmers' kitchens, which are very nice places to be. Farmers' kitchens, they always have a nice argo in there and stuff like that. But, um, you know, try and I tried to put their side and their argument about it as well, which I can understand. But the cull itself is a sort of travesty of um, just ignoring all the science and being really inhumane as well and and has been shown to be inhumane in terms of the free shooting of badgers and it's astonishing it survived as many legal challenges as it has and of course a lot of people have taken action against it in their own neighborhoods and in their countryside and it's a very divisive and polarizing issue but ultimately it's sort of pol pol political it's symbolic politics and it's it's the conservative led government really um, sort of doing something symbolic to show farmers that we're on your side you know we we, we can't repeal the the, the fox hunting act um, because we know we'll never get away with that and that's another piece of symbolic politics really so here you go you can you can kill badgers and that will make you feel like we're helping you tackle the horrendous and very real problem of bovine tb in cattle um, which is a you know uh, difficult slow moving disease there's no silver bullet there's no 
cattle vaccine that will instantly solve everything and the badger vaccine which works and and loads of wildlife trusts have done heroic work doing badger vaccination particularly in recent years derbyshire wildlife yes yeah yeah yeah. um, near near your neck of the woods um has done brilliant programs and that undoubtedly helps and it, it reduces the infectiousness um within badger populations um and there is transmission between badgers and cattle and this has been proven by science but the main transmitter of the disease in cattle are other cows that aren't detected by the pretty useless bovine tb testing regime that's based on 1950s technology and there hasn't really been the will and the uh, uh, investment to create better testing regimes for cattle and there are some now and hopefully the government's inching in that direction but it's been a it's we've we've wasted seven years uh, killing hundreds of thousands of, of badgers unnecessarily the farming side of the argument which I, I think nature lovers have to hear and listen to and and farmers will tell you even in areas where they're not troubled by bovine tb they will say well the badger population now is is much larger than it was when badgers were given legal protection and and why why can we not uh, control badgers in the way that we control foxes or, or indeed even rats and um, I, I think there's you know that's a, that's a different argument altogether and, and no naturalist nature lover like myself wants to see wildlife protection legislation roll back but it is certainly true, and, and some deny this fact, that the badger population has, has risen, not exponentially, but it's more than doubled since the 1980s, and there's huge numbers of badgers where there never were badgers, and the badger is not an endangered animal, and uh, we can argue on animal welfare grounds and so forth that we shouldn't be killing these badgers inhumanely by shooting them. A lot of badgers are hard to shoot. It's hard to shoot a badger cleanly. They take a long time to die. And so, but, you know, the farmers perhaps have a right to ask that question um, as to why the badger is so protected. And in, in Badgerlands, I explore all this. It's a sort of history of humans and badgers, and it's a very vexed history because, of course, we in Britain are disastrously bad at living alongside large animals. And we've killed every significant carnivore and wiped them out in our islands. And Badgers are our largest surviving carnivorous animal, and, and even now we're, we're sort of clamouring to kill them and control them even more. So, you know, I, I, I don't feel hugely optimistic at the prospect of bringing back lynx and wolves and so forth and all that exciting rewilding when we're so bad at living alongside any animal that impacts upon our ability to make the most money we can from our land. Yeah, no, I think if we can't get along with a badger, then how's a, a lynx, a wolf, a bear or anything like that going to gonna, um, get up there as well? Sorry, my dog, you can probably hear my dog barking in That's the background. Okay. That yeah. is going That's ballistic. one reason why badgers, I think, are so popular as well. Um, we, there's sort of this extreme in our country of um, some people uh, persecute them to a hideous extent. And I, I spent time in court with some badger baiters. I, d- I didn't realise badger baiting was still going on, to be honest, until I began researching that book. And I also spent a lot of time with badger watchers. And I think people watch badgers often because they remind us of our dogs and cats. There's something slightly cattish about them as well, but very similar to dogs in the way they behave. And their personalities are so evident too. And you can get to know your local badgers, can't you? But if you visit them regularly and they can get to know you. I see some of the stuff online of people who um, who feed badgers and yeah, they almost act like like a, a part of the family. You mentioned badger baiting. So sorry to the uninitiated. What what's what's badger baiting? I imagine you 
use bait to get a badger in but that what what's the what is that yeah good um good question historically it was kind of the badger's misfortune historically not to be a formally hunted animal so for things like the fox and the deer that were coveted by the aristocracy they created rules and protection for them and so you know even even to this day some aristocratic estates almost not quite farm foxes but you know protect foxes in in because they were at least until recently they were a hunted hunted animal and still are illegally hunted of course but um the badger was never hunted you know digging it out of a set was a back-breaking task ill-suited to a gentleman so instead it was left with no rules governing it no close season no sort of this is an animal and so badger so hunting the badger was a kind of rough and ready pursuit that working men in villages um, undertook and the idea was you would capture a badger alive and entire breeds of dog were bred for this so I've got I've recently got for my kids a miniature dachshund a dachshund is badger dog in German I've got one as well Oh, have you? That's, that's who. That's who you can hear barking in the background. Uh, is my my dachshund? Yeah, lovely animals and trained to um, hold a badger in the set, uh, go into its its set, bark at it repeatedly until the men dug down to where the badger was, and they'd catch it in a bag, take it, um, keep it in a box at the back of a pub, and every evening you'd um, some local villager would bring his dog in and and, and challenge. Uh, so you'd have a fight between the dog and the badger, and you'd bet money on who was going to win. And of course, badgers can um, easily kill much larger dogs. They're tremendously impressive animals, um, incredibly brave. And would, uh, these poor badgers would often endure many fights and then go back in their little box and and eventually die a, a, a horrible death. And this tradition carried on in, in Britain right up, well, it carries on today and there's still illegal um, people who will catch a badger and then um, bet on it with dogs. Um, in fights with dogs and, and so forth. So this barbaric thing, which was only really outlawed by the 1973 Badgers Act, has um, sort of continued underground, unfortunately. Um, curiously, culturally, it's associated with uh, with former mining towns. And I always find it still slightly ironic that it was a tradition that miners who spent six days a week digging underground would then spend their seventh day a Sunday digging, digging for a badger. Obsessed, um, obsessed with yeah. it. And so you still have these uh, badger baiting going on near old mining towns in South Wales, in North East England in particular, in the Scottish borders, um, in the Staffordshire around the potteries. And um, obviously not happening in a massive way these days but mostly still passed on sort of down the generations in this sort of hideous way and yeah it's a it's a depressing little piece of british subculture only the french appear to have had such a barbaric tradition of baiting badgers other countries appear to have left them alone it's weird then because i suppose that because obviously dachshund is german so presumably germany must have had a uh, some exactly. s- some I mean, kind of um, at some point yeah yeah, yeah. no it's strange I mean it, it seems I, I think back to 2010 and it almost seemed impossible that there would be a cull on on badges but obviously here we are like you say 10 years later and it's still still happening yeah it's been a real failure of um, politics to to sort out the problem in a in a um, in a more rational way and in, in invest in the science and get better biosecurity for cows 
and there's a brilliant vet down in um, who's been working in the West Country called Dick Sibley who has been showing farmers how they can have fairly intensive indoor dairy operations and yet not have bovine TB in their herds and it's almost entirely due to husbandry and things like um, simple things like washing out and cleaning maternity birthing units um, after birth because bovine TB spread um, between cows using these birthing units or, or birthing areas that aren't shared out properly so you know simple tweaks to farming practices can vastly it can suppress and, and almost remove bovine TB but unfortunately the badger is a easy scapegoat and I'm, I'm, I'm not blaming farmers uh, either because I think uh, you know it's also slightly a function of a of a industry that isn't isn't working well enough and supermarkets are screwing over farmers with the price they pay for milk at the farm gate you know and so dairy farmers are under pressure and they, they can't afford the hit on their profits that bovine tb represents so of course they want to control every variable and the badger is one variable and um, controlling it has meant culling it it's been but it's been a waste we've wasted eight years in britain um, culling when we could have been uh, developing more scientific responses to this difficult disease. As always with these kind of issues, it's it's never black and white, and it's it's easy to demonise one side over the other. But yeah, I think I think you've done a good job on you know taking both both into account there. So for a more easygoing book, we're not going to go for all your books, by the way, but I am going to do one more book. <laughs> um, but uh, you did do a book called Islander, uh, and I think it's easy to forget that we. Uh, we are an island nation and there are two big islands to Britain, but we have obviously thousands of smaller ones in traveling around some of them. You know, did anything surprise you that you found? Because you I know you did natural history, but you also did a bit of history and, and other kind of things when you were doing that. So was there anything that you were like, oh, that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting? Yeah, I mean, constantly, constantly. <laughs> Good. I'd be worried if you, be worried if you said no. It was really boring, and I didn't find anything out. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, I mean, you know, we have six thousand two hundred islands, islets, tidal rocks. You know, we are a huge archipelago. We we aren't one island at all. And um, yeah, I wrote this. It's essentially a kind of travel book really but a, a tour of some of what I consider to be our most interesting British islands and telling different stories with each island that I visited and there's some amazing stories so it's sort of little known that there was a um, a ger an, an German concentration camp on uh, British soil and that was on the island of Alderney, which uh, the Channel Islands were, of course, uh, Churchill decided that you couldn't defend them during the Second World War. And he withdrew from them. And Alderney was completely evacuated because there were so few residents who were only sort of uh, 2000 or so residents. And so it was very quickly taken over by the Germans and they built um, part of it. It became part of Hitler's Atlantic Wall of fortifications from um, Norway down to Spain. And... Um, he to build those fortifications he imported slave laborers mainly uh, Ukrainians um, but also people including um, Jews from France and, and political prisoners from Germany and so forth and there were around it's still disputed by historians but there were around a thousand people died on Alderney during the Second World War because of um, horrendous treatment some some were murdered by um, German guards but some most of them died of uh, hunger and malnutrition and, and horrendous 
diseases that spread through these awful camps. So um, that's pretty amazing. And, and the British authorities afterwards didn't prosecute any Germans for war crimes on Alderney. The French prosecuted a couple of German officers. Um, but it was almost like the British authorities were embarrassed that this had happened on an island that was nominally theirs. And it was kind of slightly brushed under the carpet. And now if you go to Alderney, it's a wonderful island for seabirds and wildflowers, particularly in early summer in May and June. It's beautiful, beautiful island. But there's these amazing relics from, from um, Hitler's Germany on all over Alderney. And it's sort of a piece of history that we don't really mark or, or remember. And I think it should be remembered. But so I suppose that was that was that's an example of a sort of undercurrent, a sort of darker undercurrent of island life. But there were there were so many sort of joyful encounters with. I just love the way on small islands people live more intimately with other species and tend to be a bit more self-sufficient. And I do genuinely think that small islands have lessons for us on the mainland. And certainly, you, you only have to look at the coronavirus crisis and the fact that there wasn't a single case I think of, of coronavirus in the Outer Hebrides you know they were completely disease free and um, are much more able to cope with self-sufficiency than those of us living in large towns and cities in um, Britain where we're dependent on just-in-time supermarket supply chains you know so um, I, I really like that about islands but also that islands are homes to eccentrics and there's so many great islands and, and lived alternative lifestyles kind of away from the mainstream and um and that's what islanders kind of celebrate yeah no it is it is an amazing thing like you say there's there's so many different islands around the british coastline they've got all these amazing characters and stories behind them and i've, I've been to jersey in the past and i've been all the way up to shetland and many of the ones kind of in between and yeah i can definitely say there are some eccentric people is a polite yeah. way of putting it yeah. <laughs> who, yeah, yeah. Uh, who yeah. live in, in and amongst these. I feel like we should mention as well that you are obviously a, a natural history writer for The Guardian. So that means that you get to see many nature stories uh, in your time, uh, many of them that you're obviously working on. So what I wanted to know was, and I'll, and I'll end on this question, but what is the most inspiring story that you have kind of reported on for them? And what is the most disheartening one? Oh, gosh. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's hard. I've written so much for The Guardian over the years because I've worked there since 2004 and I was there a bit earlier than that as well and I haven't written about nature that entire time but yeah I've been writing about wildlife and nature full well I'm now part-time with Guardian but uh, you know for years and years so there are so many um, inspiring stories but of course when you're writing about wildlife and the environment your your day-to-day -day tends to be more depressing stories yeah um, Oh golly, that's hard. Um, I, uh, I'm putting I you on the spot really, now. Uh, yeah, I'm sort of as as journalists have um, memories like goldfish. I don't wish to insult freshwater fish, but um, goldfish actually don't have um, appalling memories, do they? They no, no, they don't. Yeah, um, something like three months, I think. Journalists do though, so I've, I've forgotten <laughs> a lot of the the best stories I've. Um, I've worked on all the most well any any that any that stand out to you then is there rather than uh, inspiring and disheartening then is there one that you're like I'm pretty pleased with that piece oh I, d I don't know that 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 would sound too too smug but okay. in terms of most depressing most depressing are the stories that kind of come round and round again like I find the most depressing thing now reporting on any road stories because then 
you look back and there were all these amazing roads protests in the mid 1990s and we're still building new roads and we've known for 30 years that new roads only increase traffic and we now know of course we're beginning to see the full picture of what um, pollution and vehicle pollution is doing and we've seen in lockdown how um, we could use our streets and public as a public space so differently if we if we were liberated from the tyranny of the car and I'm a car driver so um, you know I can't um, that either makes me a hypocrite but I also think I'd, I'm you know I'm free to criticize it because I'm not some holier than thou person who doesn't use roads but I would quite happily um, be forced to use my car less to pay far more and to drive more slowly and use slower roads and avoid small towns I, I know you feel like towns need bypasses but what's been built now are not bypasses they're roads to facilitate new housing development so I think my, my nomination the most depressing story is the Oxford Cambridge Expressway which is that proposed new motorway to open up the countryside unlock this is what policymakers say unlock the, the countryside for a million new homes like completely unsustainable development that's going to trash anyone who's wandered through Finemere Woods or North Buckinghamshire you know I've spent a lot of time recently writing about the destruction being wrought by HS2 which is another depressing one but um, I don't think HS2 will get built beyond Birmingham actually um, but roads are such, a, such an outmoded technology um, so uh, 20th century we, we don't need roads we don't need any more so um, all those stories there's I've um, been doing a I've done one story recently on the western link outside Norwich which is just the most pointless backward road that is going to enrich a very small number of landowners and somehow they're making out that this is the popular choice for the people you know it's a road for the people it isn't it's a road to enrich a few private landowners like all roads do and are and absolutely trashing a landscape oh gosh i've ranted there a bit Jack. Um, <laughs> that's good i wanted to kind of tweak a, a nerve and then get some some yeah. passion out of you so that's good but also um, i like to think i tried desperately hard to find cheerful cheering stories because without hope we're you know we're done yeah. for and, and and I don't think we give up without hope, but I think it's it's much easier to give up without hope. And there are so many positive things going on. And basically, as soon as you move away from government, you find all these amazing people at grassroots level doing amazing things. And, um, you know, any, any of these little um, species reintroductions that have been done have been really inspiring. Um, yeah, and there's been a few that's been a success, hasn't there? Wasn't, was it, um, is it Large Blue? Were they reintroduced? There's a butterfly yeah, that was reintroduced. Large Blue is the most obvious sort of yeah. great butterfly success. And there's been sort of, we've got more Large Blues now. It became extinct in Britain in 1979. We've now got more Large Blues in uh, um in uh, Somerset and Gloucestershire than, than any other part of Europe, you know, so that's a wonderful oh. success story. And, and it isn't just vanity saving one species because you save a whole suite, you save habitat and you save a whole suite of other species. So, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of really inspiring projects to um, revive and restore the countryside and, and the city as well. And there's some really um, loads of good stuff happening. I've just done a story on a group called Wild East who are a, a bunch of, um, wealthy farmers who are pledging to put a fifth of their land, 20% of their land back to wild nature and try and encourage more regenerative, regenerative farming as well. So really with long, slow cycles, you know, over six years to improve soil health and 
Um, of course, there, there's an element of self-interest because farmers have to find a new way of surviving after Brexit and the end of the common agricultural policy. But it's wonderfully heartening when you see, you know, groups like farmers who associated with the great declines of wildlife in our countryside and they've only been doing what they've been incentivized to do by the politicians of course so again we can't hammer farmers too much but a, a lot of them are business people making money out of the land but um, there, there does seem to be a genuine desire now to farm more with nature as we have to if we're going to survive as a species and on, on our planet. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Patrick, and I look forward to seeing European butterfly aisles. I mean, not quite aisles, but a, a book on all of the European butterflies, because I'm sure that must be in the pipeline at some point. I'd love to do that, but um, I, I haven't found a publisher that will take the, take the challenging European version. But um, yeah, I'm currently working on a biography of, of Roger Deakin, the nature writer who wrote Waterlog. And okay. there's a very interesting... Um, man who led quite a wild and interesting life so um, that's a real that's a real pleasure nice one well look thanks for joining me and i'm thanks sure our paths will cross at some point so yeah take care take care that was patrick barkham now i figured we should have a butterfly reserve for nature reserve of the week and one stands head and shoulders above the rest and that is shrumpshaw fen it's a large RSPB reserve in Norfolk, though as you might expect for Norfolk, it's flat and easy to walk around. It's a myriad of broadland habitats and plays host to multiple species of wildlife. You can walk around the reed beds, woodlands, orchid-rich meadows, and you could chance upon marsh harriers, bitterns, and kingfishers. There are also Chinese water deer, as the clue's in the name, they're not native, but they are a spectacular creature to see, although very, very shy. The reserve is host to a wide variety of butterflies, dragonflies and damselflies. The best time of year to go spot them is around late May to early July. And the swallowtail butterfly, which is largely restricted to Norfolk, this is one of the best places to go and see them. Now there are up to 20 different kinds of dragonfly that can be seen, including willow emerald and the rare Norfolk hawker with its characteristic green eyes. Visitor facilities include free viewing hides and a reception area and 8 kilometres of nature trails and picnic benches. Hot drinks and a range of snacks are available to buy from reception. They have a variety of events and guided walks that they hold there as well so there's lots of activities for the kids and the adults to do and engage with lots of incredible wildlife. I've been to Shrumpsville Fen a few times now and it is an absolutely lovely reserve. There's some great opportunities for photography. I've only ever had fleeting glimpses of swallowtails. I've never got them got them close up. There is an area called the Doctor's Garden, which I think is an imaginatively title because a doctor is in a doctor's garden. And that was historically known to be a very good place for swallowtails because he, he planted lots of things um, for them to go and feed on. But yeah, I've never had them close up. They're an amazing butterfly to see though. One of the I think they're I'm right in saying they're the biggest butterfly in the UK. Certainly one of the biggest, if not. So well worth a visit if you ever get the chance. As always, I would encourage you to check out the videos that we have on YouTube, on the Wildlife Exposed YouTube channel, and you can see the snippets and best bits of the interviews on that channel. And also give us a follow on Twitter, Tit Bearded. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will catch you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>